Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. in the knowledge economy sponsored by sage transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive i'm ed kless with my friend and co-host ron baker and on today's show folks we are pleased to have our first interview with connor boyack how's it going ron during the great suppression in california oh man in lockdown america held hostage got some toilet tissue yet no Still can't no. find it, Ed. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, but you have wine. Wine is wine. a good stock. That's all that matters. Okay. So just, just, just checking in. Well, <laughs> we are thrilled to have uh, Connor Boyack on. We're going to jump, go right to our guest here. Uh, just a quick bio. Connor is the president of the Libertas Institute, a free market think tank in Utah. He is the author of over a dozen books on politics, education, and culture along with hundreds of columns and articles championing individual liberty. He is also the president of the Association for Teaching Kids Economics, a national nonprofit helping K-8 students learn free market ideas. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Connor. Thank you for having me. Well, before we get into the interview, just, just checking in with you, how are you and your family doing during the Great Suppression? Uh, we've actually been all right. The uh, state that I'm in, Utah, does not have a full lockdown. In fact, they're already opening things up. My wife and I were at a, a restaurant just a couple of days ago, dining in and just feeling like, oh, this is, this is what freedom feels like. It's so nice to remember what it's like to go and eat at a restaurant. So it's nice to see, at least in some areas of the country, things are starting to open back up here pretty quick. Yes, and I am in Texas, and this week I've had a haircut, I've gone to the dentist, had a doctor appointment, and a lunch date with a friend, so it was awesome. It was, you know, almost normal. <laughs> the little things in life. I know, it's really, really quite amazing, but uh, anyway, um, I, we're thrilled to have you on, and what really spurred getting you on was a, a column that you wrote. We'll get to that later, but I want to tell you the story of how I was first introduced to your work. And it was through a, a book that one of my kids brought home from, from school, and they were reading called The Rainbow Fish. Are you familiar with The Rainbow Fish? I'm not, no. Oh, you are, yes. Well, okay, so The Rainbow Fish is this beautiful fish who has these lovely scales, only nobody likes it because the fish is pretty and everybody else is just kind of plain. And in order to basically buy the friendship of the other fish, it gives away its beautiful scales to all mm. of the other fish. <laughs> it's the, yeah, it's the only book banned in the Kless household. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> so yes, I have, I have a banned book list and it consists of one called the rainbow fish. And as, as the antidote to that, I was searching for other books and I came across, across one called the big orange splot. Are you familiar with that one? I am. I have that one. Okay. Great book, <laughs> which is the, is the greatest book because it's the most anti homeowners association <laughs> book ever written <laughs> in the history of the world. Um, 
<laughs> and I just absolutely love it. And I think as part of Amazon's, hey, you might also like, <laughs> um, and, and then I think I heard an interview with you on either Tom Woods or may have even been the Cato Institute. Have you ever talked to the Cato? I've done both podcasts several times. Both podcasts. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. yeah. So it probably was Cato because I was more of a, a fan back then uh, with, with Cato or I should say become more accustomed to listening to more Tom Woods. Anyway, uh, heard about your book, which the first one I believe was The Law. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. The Tuttle Twins Learn About the Law. Tell us something about the law, which which undertook taking Frederick Bastiat, that w for whom we've done an entire show on Bastiat's work here, and bring it bring it down to a K through eight level. And I got to tell you, I I was thrilled to buy it, and even more amazed when I bought it. But tell us the story of how you got to writing children's books that wanted to promote these free market ideas. So I'm what I like to call a full time freedom fighter. I run a nonprofit that's involved in education and political advocacy. Uh, we change hearts, minds, and laws, and we actually create a, a freer world, and it's a ton of fun. And I am a father of two children where a few years ago, I was finding myself wanting to share with my kids what I do, you know? But how do you talk to an eight-year-old about eminent domain? Or how do you talk to a six-year-old <laughs> about protectionism, right? And, and these questions were on my mind because I'd come home and, hey, kids, tell me what you did today. How was your day? And, and then I'd want to talk to them about what I did. But, but I didn't have the language to do that. I, so like any parent, uh, you know, I also went searching on Amazon saying, like, what books are out there that I can introduce to my kids? And um, couldn't really find anything. And uh, there was some stuff for like the Constitution, but there wasn't really anything that instilled, you know, these like free market political uh, principles of, of free society. And I spent a couple of weeks being kind of bummed. Ah, oh, it'd be, you know, so nice if there was something. And, and then I kind of realized, hey, you dolts, you talk about entrepreneurship all the time. Uh, here, here's an opportunity. So we did that book, The Tuttle Twins Learn About the Law. Each of our children's books is based on a classic, you know, essay or book, just like Bastiat's The Law. And for both Elijah and I, Elijah's the illustrator, uh, this was only just a single book project to begin with. We had no idea if this would turn into anything else. So we're like, hey, if this flops, what would be the one book that we would want to base, you know, our book off of? And Bastiat's The Law was instrumental for both of us in our you know, intellectual development process. And so to kind of pay homage to Bastiat and share his ideas to the rising generation, we decided to do that one. But the market response was fantastic. Um, and so we decided to keep going. We now have 11 books in the children's series and a whole bunch of other books and projects. Uh, it's been a ton of fun. Well, I have to say, I think I, I have five of yours sitting in front of me. I'm pretty sure I have at least two or three others that were not did not make it to their proper place on our bookshelf. So they're probably in my kid's room someplace. Uh, but who don't have don't have the complete set. Um, I, I, I have to tell you that before I sat down to do this interview, I was told by my son that he wanted to tell you that his favorite was the law. And my daughter's favorite is the the uh, the miraculous pencil. So oh, that's just, fun. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's, I say it's fun because I would say like 80% of kids uh, that I hear from either directly or from their parents, their favorite is uh, the creature from Jekyll Island. And the only 
theory I have about that is that in that particular book, it, it paints, you know, this creature from Jekyll Island, which is really the Federal Reserve, as this actual like scary creature going around changing the prices of things and making it all cost more. And maybe because of like the intrigue and the, the bad guy kind of element, a lot of kids gravitate to that one. But I'm always happy to hear that some of the other ones are favorites as well. Yes, and, I, and I've even had the opportunity to read a couple of them to my kids' uh, classes when it was, you know, dad's turn to read at, at school day. So uh, we were, I was cool. pretty pleased to be able to do that. And along those lines, I wanted to ask you a question about this. And in fact, Ron and I were, were talking about work, uh, t- talking to you this on, on Friday here. And one of the things that we kind of noticed about this whole thing that's going on with COVID is we almost need a, a reverse I pencil essay to try to explain to people what it is that we're doing by hitting the pause button. I think that would be super interesting because that's exactly right. The economy is so interdependent that even when you say certain businesses are essential and, you know, others aren't essential and we're going to allow you to work, but not you. uh, It it really complicates matters because our work is so mutually interdependent that you know, you kind of pull out one pin and the rest of it crumbles and runs into problems. So that would actually be very fascinating. And frankly, you know, we're kind of living through that experiment, that kind of uh, thought project right now and seeing the economic catastrophes that are being caused by these market distortions uh, by the government. In fact, our most recent book, oddly enough, was published just a, a few months before all of this happened. And it talks about bailouts and stimulus and all of these things that are happening right now and it's kind of interesting to to see in that book that kids are now able to have a vocabulary to talk about you know like literally the title is the Tuttle Twins and the Messed Up Market and so it's super interesting to to think about for families uh, have a vocabulary where they can chat about these things together. Yeah, and I, I haven't read that one. As I said, my, my kids are a little bit, little bit older for, for your books right now, although we, you do have a, a program for teens, which it, perhaps in the next segment we'll be able to get to. But in, in the messed up market, I hope you're getting some, some traction from people who maybe pick it up thinking that it's an anti-market book. <laughs> <laughs> only to educate <laughs> to educate them because I don't know about well in fact I do know because you, you you've written about this in in your blog recently you know the, the rhetoric that we're hearing about this is market failure is is quite frankly is maddening yeah that's exactly right and and it just shows you I think the product of public education where so many people can understand so little about economics <laughs> It's it, true. And, and we're, you know, we're, we're trying to, I'm, I'm sure Ron's going to ask you a little bit more about this, but we, we, we just frankly don't know. I mean, th- this is truly the, the word unprecedented is thrown around an awful lot in this situation, but this really is, we've never been in a situation where an, an entire world economy and even the, a US, the, the, the economy of an, an entire nation as big as the United States has, has had the, the snooze button hit on it. That, that's right. And what's hard right now for me is, is the precedent that's being set. I, I think most people are expecting this will be temporary, we'll come out of this, we'll get back to whatever the quote unquote new normal is. Um, but I'm worried about the precedent, right? If the government now sees that they can hit the pause button, that they can intervene in the market like this, if they can, for a certain amount of deaths or a certain amount of you know, fear, shut things down and boss people around like this. What is the next event, the next crisis that's going to be exploited to do this and maybe a little more? They're always going to push a little bit more incrementally in that direction. And 
that's what worries me most is the long-term implications of what's happening right now. Yeah, with, with you on that. Well, as always, this show is flying by for us, but right, we, we have to take our first break. want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website for the show is thesoulofenterprise.com, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows and our show archive of all 280-plus shows that we've previously done. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Connor Boyack, and he's written many, many children's books along with some other books. And Connor, I'll probably ask you about some of those other books in the last segment, but I have such respect for what you do because I've written nonfiction books, but children's books are completely different. In fact, you probably know this, but William F. Buckley, who wrote over 50 books in his career, he wrote one children's book and he said, without a doubt, it was the hardest to write. (laughs) And, you you know, Rush Limbaugh also writes children's books and I'm just curious did you find it harder was it easier was it what you expected no that that's uh, i'm glad to know of that quote because uh, i was not familiar with it and, and i laugh because i can relate to it uh, i previous to doing the tuttle twins had written several uh, you know non-fiction books for adults and i could be my wonky self you know using right. big words and just sharing the ideas and writing uh, to that type of reader Um, It is very difficult, Um, but I will say it's also kind of enjoyable because I think to effectively do this, as I say, we've got 11 children's books now, we've got three books for teens, 
we're working on a few books uh, projects right now you have to do it through storytelling it's it's what resonates with children frankly it's what resonates with adults as well which is why so many parents uh, love the books as well they themselves are also learning because you couch in a story the the kind of exposure of these ideas rather than in textbook format you know saying here's what this concept is or just explaining it uh, as you would in a nonfiction book, you use story, you create a, a set of circumstances in which the outcomes and the effects and the, the, uh, the nature of these ideas can come out and be manifest in the story. So the hardest part, frankly, uh, there's two hard things that come with this. The first is figuring out what that story is going to be. How, how do you create a setting in which some of these ideas can percolate? The second is then you have to you know, distill in our case with these books, these complex economic or political ideas down to their essence. How do you, you know, if you imagine yourself, and this is a kind of a mental thing that I do sometimes, I imagine myself as an elementary school teacher and a kid comes up and asks me, you know, I just read about this big word, spontaneous order. What does that mean? Right. And I kind of imagine myself getting down on one knee um, to, to be eye to eye with that child. And, and that places me in the mindset of, okay, how do I explain this simply? And then when I kind of try and think through that, that's what comes out in the books and we kind of refine the language from there. So it is quite a process. It's not just like stream of consciousness, like with a nonprofit or excuse me, a nonfiction book, just being able to type up whatever comes out of your mind. It very much is this concerted effort to simplify, but not dumb things down. You don't want it to, you don't want to lose the power of the ideas, but you have to figure out how to convey them to a much younger reader. And, and it is pretty complex. Right. And you know, when you write a nonfiction book and the reason I could probably never write a novel or a children's book is because, yeah, I can tell stories in the nonfiction book and, and have many, but <laughs> you only have to deal with what people think you have to plot. And I think that's another dimension that's really, really hard. It's something, though, that I find a lot of joy in that even though difficult, uh, honestly, the first few were harder, both because I kind of hadn't yet found the groove, but now it's just kind of a well-oiled machine and we're used to doing it, so it's a little bit easier. But also, it's just so motivating because I get so many of these emails and social media posts and stuff from parents just blown away at what their seven-year-old is learning about, at the conversations they're having and that their dinner conversations have gone from, you know, boring and mundane to like talking about what's happening in the world and, and having it explained in a way that makes sense to their children. So that's very motivating for us that yes, though it's, you know, difficult to do. Um, and, and it is a challenge to kind of pack these ideas down in a, in a exciting, entertaining, but educational way. Um, it is, we're very motivated. I, I get a smile on my face from doing this kind of stuff, just from seeing so many kids learning these concepts. Right. Yeah, no, I know it must be very gratifying because I, 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 to prep for the show, I went back and listened to some of your earlier interviews with Tom Woods and you had quoted Frederick Douglass, which you, you think is apocryphal, but I think it's a great quote. If he didn't say it, he, sh he probably should have, but it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. Mm. Was that kind of the driver behind these books? Cause that's a, that's a profound line. Uh, yeah, you know, as this kind of freedom fighter that I am, and we're, we're talking to adults, and we're trying to change laws and mindsets, you find that as people mature in life, they kind of are set in their ways, it's very hard to change someone's mind, it takes a lot of time, or 
for organizations whose job it is to persuade people, it takes a lot of money. And the return on investment is very low because people largely believe what they have long believed. And so I think the way to help people understand the ideas of a free society is to educate the rising generation, just as the opposite has been done for, for years, for decades in the public school system that, you know, the, the socialism and central planning ideas and uh, anti-free market ideas have, have pervaded uh, curriculum and textbooks and, and been taught by teachers. And so um, not that we want to be in the game of propaganda, but it's very clear that the rising generation is being uh, marketed to by various philosophies. And why in the world would we, as uh, supporters of the free market, not want to help uh, parents talk to their children about these ideas and provide them a foundation uh, for the future that can help them throughout their life and, and create a stronger society. So I, I think it's not only important, I think it's imperative that we be doing things like this. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I used to teach economics for junior achievement and it, it, and that was at the high school level, but that was incredibly gratifying to introduce some of these students to some of these concepts and just to, just to pull it down and make it you know, concretize it. How do you, for example, teach the non-aggression principle to children? So one thing I found interesting about doing these books is that um, we're often teaching children things that their parents or, or, you know, good parents naturally do anyways, right? Don't hit other kids. Don't hurt people. Don't steal their stuff. And I find that as adults, we kind of add little asterisks onto these things, right? Oh, just kidding. If, if it's a you know, politician, it's okay. If it's a police officer, it's okay. If, if a majority of people vote and say that it's okay to steal someone's property, then it's okay. Where really with these books, we're just saying, no, those asterisks don't apply. Those same lessons of, you know, don't hurt other people, don't take their stuff. You know, not only are those asterisks inappropriate and, and even immoral, uh, but the lessons that you've been taught as a child hold true as adults. And, and it's the same way with the non-aggression principle. It's a basic axiom of, of parenthood to teach this idea that, you know, you shouldn't harm other people, but, you know, if a bully is picking on you, it's okay to defend yourself. And, uh, and so too with uh, the way our government should be operating. So too with the way that, that we should be interacting with one another through the government where as neighbors, should we be oppressing one another through voting and taking money from people and, dictating how they should be able to, you know, use their property. So in our particular case, we decided to actually invert it and turn the non-aggression principle into kind of its um, corollary, which is, you know, non-aggression principle is um, it, it's never okay to aggress against uh, an, another person. Um, you should only use uh, any type of violence or force in, in, in self-defense. That's kind of the negative version. Uh, the positive corollary of that, I think, is really the golden rule. We should actually proactively treat other people the way we want to be treated. So certainly we don't want to be aggressed upon. We should not aggress upon others. But just as we want other people to peacefully interact with us, we should also ensure that we peacefully uh, interact with others first. And so any parent can relate to the golden rule, whether you're religious or non-religious. And we decided to turn that into the Tuttle Twins and the Golden Rule, where through a, a story um, that we came up with in the book, the, the twins and their friends can experience what it's like to be bullied, to be aggressed upon, uh, and, and along the way be taught about the power and importance of the Golden Rule. And that if we really live the Golden Rule, then we are not going to aggress uh, against others. And we can create a society in which aggression 
uh, is eliminated and subdued because we're you know, treating one another the way that, that we want to be treated. So again, here's an opportunity for families and parents who are like, oh, we believe these things already, but we haven't really had that vocabulary to extend that idea of the golden rule out to something like the non-aggression principle and, uh, and, and so forth. And so our books serve as kind of that vehicle to have these conversations and introduce these ideas in that way. And not only did you take on Bastia in the law, but you've also taken on Hayek in The Road to Serfdom and The Miraculous Pencil, which I wish I would have read Leonard Reed's essay when I was a kid and had that explained. I think that is one of the most mind-blowing essays to read. Is is that the, you, you mentioned Jekyll Island was the most popular, but I would imagine that The Miraculous Pencil is really popular as well. It is, you know, and, and what I found most fun with the Miraculous Pencil is, the, again, as we discussed uh, earlier, the interconnectedness of the economy. It's, it's very fun to see these kids uh, light up when they realize how many people are involved in making their pencil, their T-shirt, their book, you know, let alone complex things like cars and computers. Um, one thing that we've done with our children after reading the book is we'll sit down for dinner and say, okay, mom helped prepare the meal, but who else helped? And we think through all the many people, right? The farmer, the grocery store workers, the, the folks who built the roads that you could transport all these things on, the manufacturers and all this kinds of stuff. All these people uh, are all serving us, all for the cost of pennies comparatively. We're, we're able to access the labor and the hard work of all these people around the world who work together to provide us this meal or provide us this pencil. Um, and, and that's fun for a lot of kids. Kids naturally have this sense of curiosity and wonder about the world that they're in. And that's a book that very much kind of plays along uh, with that. Have you ever run across a book called The Toaster Project? I haven't, no. It's about a, a UK design student who is told to make something from scratch. Now, obviously, you have to put some rules in place because I think Carl Sagan said, you know, if you really make a pie from scratch, you first have to create the universe. But this guy figures, well, I'll just go buy an $8 toaster, you know, at Target or whatever, and I'll, I'll make that. And it ends up taking him like 18 months. He spends like three grand and it doesn't work. And, and it's just, it, it's eye pencil on steroids. It's hilarious, but it's a really profound point that something like a toaster, I forget how many parts it had, you know, 500 parts in it and all these different types of chemicals, but it's just a really great story. Of, of how ridiculously complex it is to build something that, you know, we can buy for eight bucks. That's exactly right. I've seen uh, YouTube videos where people attempt the same. I'm, I'm going to make a sandwich all on my own, right? And they're having to, you know, grow the wheat and grind the wheat and grow the lettuce and the tomatoes and, you know, slaughter the chicken and all this kinds of stuff. And look, a lot of this is feasible, but it's absurd because the amount of time you have to invest to do things on your own it's preposterous and it, and, and it's poor quality because I can't, you know, do all those various things well. Maybe I can do one or two of them well, but man, the world is such a better place because we all work together one another despite all its critics. The market is the vehicle that has created the, the prosperous society we have. It's hilarious to see, you know, Occupy Wall Street or, or you know, social justice warrior type people uh, protesting capitalism and this, that, and the other. And they're using the tools of capitalism to do it, right? They're organizing on Facebook. They're texting on their cell phones. They're, they're using all these things that, that the free market or partially free market, uh, nonetheless, uh, has been able to still develop and lead to. 
the amazing world, the, the tools, the products and everything that we benefit from. And, uh, and I just think it's something we should continue to support and make sure we have a free market. Well, this is great, Connor. Maybe I'll ask you when we come back. Uh, the, you wrote a book, The Tuttle Twins and the Search for Atlas, which is about Ayn Rand, some of Ayn Rand's ideas. And I just, what was the reaction to that book? I know it got uh, some bad press. Yeah, we got some bad press, which is always good press. It was fun to Absolutely. see some uh, cranky people online saying that we're trying to brainwash kids with <laughs> Ayn Rand's ideas. So we had a lot of fun with that one. That's fantastic that you did that. All right. Well, folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. We'll post full show notes on our interview with Connor at thesoulofenterprise.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. We have with us today on the Soul of Enterprise, author Connor Boyack, who's the author of many of the my favorite children's books that I've had the opportunity to read with my kids. But Connor, I want to kind of bring it up to a more more adult level conversation uh, a bit. Although many of the things that you write about in your blog are related back to to some of the books, and I, I do I do enjoy reading it. Uh, I'm, I, I want to share with you with, with, with interest the, the connection with uh, Shelley Luther, who is the salon owner in Dallas, which is just south of me. Um, I've had some friends who've participated in some of the protests that she was involved with. And uh, for those listeners who don't know, Shelley Luther was a salon uh, or is a salon owner in, in, in the county of Dallas uh, due to the order that Governor Abbott signed and then also in, imposed by the, the county judge, which in Texas is the equivalent of the county executive, uh, was, was uh, arrested and uh, put in jail for seven days for opening her salon during the lockdown. 
Governor Abbott then changed his mind and said, hey, listen, I don't want people to go in, going to, to jail for all this, which is somewhat ridiculous. But Connor, you write, and most eloquently, in a blog post called, Are Law All Laws Inherently Violent? Could you unpack that for us? Well, you know, it was George Washington who said that, you know, government is forced and, and like fire, you know, it's a dangerous master. Um, we, we have to recognize that the government does not request things politely. These aren't suggestions. Uh, you know, Abbott's order uh, even though he later kind of backpedaled and, oh, I didn't, you know, in, intend for anyone to go to jail. Um, that is the natural consequence of the government bossing people around. These, these aren't, you know, mere platitudes. Uh, they're, they're not suggestions, as I said. So all laws are inherently violent because they're always backed up by the threat of force. And if a salon owner or, you know, someone else dares to defy a government edict, uh, you know, the police officers, law enforcement are not typically uh, used to people defying their orders. They don't often take kindly to people who resist um, and who, uh, you know, disobey. And so those tensions naturally lead to altercations where the person is compelled by force. Uh, sometimes it takes the, uh, you know, rather than actual physical violence, it can often be fines levied on your home they can take your home uh, of course then if you you know stay home they'll come and forcefully remove you and naturally anyone who dis, uh, disagrees with what the government is doing and and rejects their you know uh, assertions about what they can tell you to do at the end of the day there's going to be some kind of violent altercation we've of course seen throughout history a number of these episodes in America where people who stood up and said no uh, met with some level of, of violence, including death. Um, and so typically people are accustomed to compliance. They're accustomed to eventually doing what they're told and grumbling about it and, you know, writing, giving money to the government or whatever. But they're, uh, at the end of the day, all laws are backed by force. And when we support a law, when we support, you know, hey, those businesses ought to close, we need to be very careful because we are in effect and, and in actuality saying, I believe that anyone who opens a business when I think they shouldn't uh, should be dealt with, you know, through violence and potentially killed over it. And, and that is a calculation I think we would be wise to reconsider rather than be so blithe about, oh, there ought to be a law and, and the governor ought to say this, that, or the other. Uh, we need to think of it more in terms of what what is acceptable uh, to be enforced by violence? And I think that would cause a, a far different shift than what we're seeing right now in terms of the appropriate level and, and, uh, and uh, imposition of government in our lives. Well, usually when I ask this question, it's, it's with, a, with an irony in, in mind, but I'm genuinely curious now. So do you think that taxation is theft? So, you know, it's a, it's a fun hashtag and slogan. Um, right. But, uh, but yes, um, but by, but by definition, uh, taxation is coercive. Uh, think of, you know, insurance, think of your cell phone. Uh, you know, the, you can choose uh, which service you want to go to without uprooting your life and abandoning your property. The problem ultimately is that we have a government model based on uh, jurisdiction. Whereas, you know, I can stay in my home and I can choose different cell phone providers or different insurance agencies or different churches or, you know, sports leagues or whatever. When the government says, oh, these lines on a map, we claim jurisdiction within them. And so anyone 
living in this territory has to pay us. Well, that's extortion. It's, it's certainly not more like a membership fee to the gym. You can choose different gyms and you sign on the dotted line. You give explicit consent. That is the biggest problem in our government. And it's one that we often don't like to talk about. And that is, as the Declaration of Independence notes, you know, just government uh, relies upon the consent of the governed. Taxation, when there's consent, is not taxation. It's a membership fee. It's, oh yeah, okay, my gym is making me pay this and here's the services they provide me and I explicitly agree and then I can leave and go to a different gym at any time. That is consent. Uh, you know, of course, in the sexual context, we understand the problems of, of lack of consent and how that changes the dynamics of a relationship. So taxation, the problem is there's no consent. Uh, we're, we haven't consented to you know, be taxed in this way. We haven't consented to the government to steal and take more of our money. Um, so taxation is theft, but it's a reflective of an underlying problem in terms of how government receives consent and how we can meaningfully dissent. Because unless you can dissent, then there is no consent. Unless you can say no, you're not actually saying yes. And we don't really have a system of government, unfortunately, where people can say no and opt out of certain laws and taxes and, and uh, powers of government. Therefore, there really is no consent and therefore taxation indeed is theft. All right. Um, I've, I've often thought that maybe the, the best, if there is to be taxation, it would potentially be on, on transactions. So a, a use tax, so to speak. But then that leads to the, the, the creature from Jekyll Island, right? Which is we're using the Federal Reserve currency. So there would have to be this, this uh, yes, you, you have to pay this use tax because you're using our property, which is our monetary system. So at least then, then, then it's a use fee. But I wanted to ask you, uh, because it's at the, at the end of the Creature for Jekyll Island, you do mention, this is back in 2014, uh, uh, Bitcoin. And what, what are your thoughts on alternative currencies and or the, the gold standard? Do you think that those are the things we have to go back to? Or would you rather see a system where uh, we have, in say, in the 1800s, where different banks create their, their own set of currencies that people use? Uh, that's a great question. I think that um, the important thing here is that the government should not have the ability to create money because that is a perverse incentive for it to accumulate power and accumulate wealth. And uh, I think that is the biggest problem is that fiat currency has allowed governments to uh, to do all kinds of things that they otherwise would be quite restrained from doing, whether that is a gold standard or uh, by not having fiat currency and instead having things like cryptocurrency. The more we can take the power uh, of money and making money away from the government, I think the better. I do think there uh, would be, even though there were a lot of problems in the past when banks were issuing their own uh, currencies, um, nevertheless, I think like everything, competition always improves outcomes. And if separate banks or separate organizations or whatever have different currencies and they're all competing on the open market, I think that would be beneficial, um, especially because it would encourage restraint of any one you know, person issuing currency to suddenly you know, inflate theirs or manipulate it because in open competition, it's, its uh, value would go down relative to others. Um, I'm a big fan of cryptocurrency. I am uh, a little bit worried that we're not going to see the kind of adoption and the revolutionary nature of it that a lot of us anticipated or hoped for early on. Um, it more just seems to be a, kind of another asset class for speculation and we hope the number goes up, but it's not really revolutionizing industry. I am actually a much bigger fan of Ethereum 
because I think that it has a lot of programmatic capabilities that uh, especially once they shift to kind of their new update that they're doing later this year and start to do uh, proof of stake and, and things like that. Um, there's a lot of opportunity for developers and others to, to kind of utilize that protocol in a way that can hopefully start to take away uh, some market share from the current system. So all of that is to say our, our current market is extremely manipulated. The biggest problem I think is the government has its hands and everything. And so whether that's crypto or something else, I, I think it's always um, beneficial when we can get the government out of manufacturing currency, manipulating our money. Uh, there have just been so many problems as a result of its ability to do so. So I think the, the more we look for alternatives, the better. Yeah, I'm, I've been a fan of the, the Brave browser for over a year and uh, anticipate making money for surfing the internet at some point. Yes, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's what I do. Yeah. Um, uh, we got about uh, two minutes left, and I want to, to just turn your attention to one other essay that you've recently written in, in light of what's happening with uh, the Great Suppression. What do you think is going to happen with regard to homeschooling? Are, are we going to have a big uptick in that because parents have realized, hey, we can make this happen a little bit better? Or you think there'll be a, a, maybe even a backlash the other way? I think the education establishment is very worried right now. Uh, because as we've seen, uh, everyone has had this kind of quasi homeschooling experience, more crisis schooling perhaps, but there's been two national polls that have come out in recent weeks, one of which we shared in the article you mentioned. These can be found at tuttletwins.com slash email. And uh, 52% of parents uh, in this kind of current COVID crisis have developed a more favorable view of homeschool. I, I can't imagine that that won't have implications come fall semester. Look, a lot of these people, they say that in a poll, but at the end of the day, they use school as babysitting, right? Because both parents work jobs or whatever. They just prefer to have their kids out of the home. And so for a lot of people, schooling is, is half babysitting and half education. That's very enticing for a lot of parents. But I do feel that even if even a fraction of that 52% stick with it, pull their kids out, decide to homeschool instead, you know, we're talking about tens or hundreds of thousands of children, if not potentially millions of children nationwide who are now going to be opting out of the system. That's going to have funding implications for the public school system. It's going to lead to teachers being fired, schools being closed. I think you're going to see a lot of pressure on these education establishments to have more flexibility, more customization um as a result of this experiment and, and i think folks like us in kind of the reform space and the advocacy space need to keep that pressure on because we definitely don't want to return to the status quo as bad as COVID has been in so many ways i think this is one of the silver linings for sure is accelerating the adoption of you know alternative education formats within or competing with the public education system so it's actually something i'm i'm really excited about Outstanding. Well, we're up against our next break and Ron's going to take you the rest of the way home. But be, before I just I get a chance to say thanks, uh, Connor, for being a guest on the Soul of Enterprise. I've really appreciated getting to know you a little bit here in this conversation. And uh, uh, like I said, uh, Ron will take you home. Sounds great. Uh, I want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending that email to asktsoe at verisage.com. That is also the Twitter handle at AskTSOE, which we live tweet during the show. So if you want to see what's going on, that would be the place to go to see that. Also, ratethispodcast.com slash 
TSOE is the place where you can give our podcast a rating. We appreciate that. That's the currency of what it is that we do. So rate this podcast.com slash TSOE. And right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Connor Boyack. And Connor, I wanted to ask you, you take on so many great topics. Have you ever tackled the subjective versus the labor theory of value? You know, that's nothing that we've tackled uh, head on. It's something I've actually been thinking about. We get a lot of suggestions for like, you know, other books that we should be working on in the Tuttle Twins uh, series. And and that topic in particular is definitely on the to-do list because it's so critical to understand. Um, So we don't have anything squarely on point. I would say that we do tackle it in our curriculum. Uh, we actually discuss it quite a bit there. So we have a, a, a weekly curriculum that families can participate with children of all ages. That's at freemarket.tuttletwins.com. And, mm. uh, and so we talk about it there. So it's not in our books, but it, but it is over in our curriculum. Excellent. I, I was just thinking of other possible topics too. I'd love to, I wish I would have known about as a kid. Would, one would be negative versus positive rights. Totally. Yeah, that's one I, I uh, talk about a lot. It's, it's something that, uh, especially with all these like democratic socialists uh, popping up and the, the schools helping kind of, um, you know, uh, produce a lot of this kind of democratic socialism and certainly not teaching anything contrary to it. Uh, you know, imagine a civics class that actually taught these types of, uh, not just like dates and facts and here's what happened when, but Let's, let's talk about ideologies. I mean, imagine having a high school civic class talking about all the isms, right? right? Capitalism versus socialism, collectivism versus individualism. And let's expose, 
young people these ideas? How intoxicating would a class like that be to have debates and learn this stuff? But we don't do any of that. And, and that's, that's sad. It really is. Yeah. Go back to first principles. What's your take on the UBI? And have you ever thought about doing a children's book on the UBI? We've had a few people suggest that one. Uh, I, I think uh, with Yang running for president and certainly with coronavirus and this idea of direct payments to, to people now to weather the storm, uh, it's, it's kind of a little more in vogue than it ever has been. It's something that I don't support. I frankly think that there should be zero welfare. I don't think that's a proper role of government. Uh, again, going back to the concept of force, I'm being forced to subsidize the lives of other people and help them. I want to charitably do so. I think there's definitely a voluntary role for that. And I know there's a lot of people who make relativistic arguments about UBI, that it's you know incrementally better or superior to the current welfare system. My interest more is, is you know creating a society of people who are personally responsible and voluntary charity and, and winding down this massive welfare state, not just uh, shifting what it looks like. Right. I mean, don't we try and teach the kids that the world doesn't know you a living? It was right. your first type of thing. <laughs> Except uh, for when uh, Barack Obama ran for president. Do you remember that fictional Julia character that they yes. had during the campaign? Oh, and yes. here's how the government does all these wonderful things for Julia when she's young and when she's a teen and when she's old. And, and it very much was this cradle to grave. You know, we will care for you. We will support you. And uh, how how dangerous is that infectious idea that the government is there to give you things? That's uh, it's very seductive, I think, for a lot of young people to 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 think for and wish for. It really is. Yeah, that whole video, you never saw her interact with anybody but the government. It was just depressing. So tell us about your book, Passion Driven Education, how to use your child's interest to ignite a lifelong love of learning. So every parent knows that their child, each child is different. If you have more than one child, different interests, different abilities. Why in the world do we support an education system that treats uh, all children like they are the same or should be the same? We have a, a public school system that was designed by its architects, secular human progressives, uh, secular humanist progressives, excuse me, to be an industrial uh, type of manufacturing system where all ch children go on a conveyor belt beginning to end. They do the same things at the same time. They're expected to turn out the same way. I can't imagine of anything more dystopian as a parent to thrust my child into such a system. It, it terrifies me. And I should note, I am a product of such a system. I went to public school all growing up, but as a parent, I, I can't fathom the idea of, of subjecting my child to that because they're so different and unique. I want uh, an education style that honors my children's individuality, that allows them the freedom and flexibility to learn what interests them, because that is how we as adults learn. It's how we retain knowledge. We focus on what interests us. We go down rabbit holes and tangents and, you know, go where our curiosity leads us or where our, you know, job requires us to go. We have motivations and incentives to learn certain things. And, uh, getting away from this compulsive idea of all children have to learn the quadratic equation and, you know, mitochondria and all these like silly things that are drilled into kids' heads, but almost never used. Uh, Passion-driven education, by contrast, is the idea that we can build an education approach for our children centered around their unique interests, which change over time. My son used to love Angry Birds, and so we'd figure out how to talk to him about you know, video game design and manufacturing Angry Birds plush toys. 
and math and physics, the gravity of them flinging up in the air and crashing down and all these subjects that we could help him understand what he was interested in. To him, it was not drudgery. It was not, you know, homework. It was enthralling because he was better understanding something he was interested in. And of course, now he's shifted to Pokemon. So we do the same thing with Pokemon, <laughs> using my children's interests as a way to hook in uh, all these different subject matters that help them understand the world that they're excited about. And that to me is where knowledge retention comes in. Personal satisfaction is through the roof. We're honoring their individuality. We're giving them freedom. Uh, I've seen it just succeed like crazy. I used to speak at a bunch of conferences about this. And the stories are amazing of parents who have kind of pulled their kids out of school or shifted their homeschool curriculum to this model and, and the, the, the way the children thrive are just amazing. So it's, it's something that I get really excited about. Yeah, it's kind of the motto of the unschooling movement, isn't it? Like, just let your kids follow what they're interested in. Yeah, and you don't have to necessarily unschool, but I definitely think you have to step back and, and let your children, you know, be at the, the steering wheel of their own life a little bit, right? We can put up guardrails and have our foot on the brakes and uh, have appropriate caution, but man, why do we chauffeur our children for their most formative years and they're in the backseat of their own life? Uh, how much more fun is it as a child to, to sit on your parents' lap on the, you know, in the driver's seat and be able to hold the wheel and steer a little bit? Uh, you know, every child wants that. And so this is kind of an educational model that is analogous to that example. It's true. So I think it's the only reason I took up golf as a kid so I could drive the cart. Uh, <laughs> you, tell us about your book, Skip College. So uh, this is a compilation of essays that I put together with a bunch of education reform-minded folks. Um, basically exposing teenagers and young adults to alternatives. Again, if we have this conveyor belt, let's put up some detour signs along the way and say, hey, rather than doing what your parents did, rather than doing what all your peers are, here are some other opportunities. So the book, as provocative as the title is, does not necessarily argue that everyone should leave uh, college or not go to college, but just that it should be a very intentional decision. And after considering all these other alternatives that are cheaper, save you time, get you into the job market better. Uh, so uh, that's pretty new on the market. And I think especially after coronavirus, a message that a lot of people will be interested in. Fantastic. Well, Connor, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. It's just been a pleasure to get to know you and, and keep up the good work, please, because what you're doing is vitally important. Thanks for having me. Ed, what do we got coming up next week? Next week, Ron, we have Professor Deirdre McClowski. Oh, right on. Our first guest is coming back. Excellent. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. That's 1 p.m. Pacific. But in the meantime, please feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. <laughs>